When we were thinking about what we wanted to look into for the first episode of Current Geek Chronicles, we had a lot of options. Yeah, and I don't think we really need to tell our listeners that geek culture is a pretty wide field to cover. I mean, we do a lot of stuff from tech to sci-fi, movies and novels. There is a ton of stuff out there. And don't worry, we plan to cover it all in due time. But when we were discussing a debut episode, we hit on something that struck a chord with both of us. Mana. Chronicles. Let's talk mana. Yeah, I mean, the concept is used in all sorts of fantasy we both enjoy. I mean, heck, Blizzard's been using this as a game mechanic for 25 years plus at this point. That's ditto for pretty much all video game implementations of RPGs. It's pretty much standard now. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to look very hard and you'll find it across a ton of different media, games, novels, movies. Not all fantasy uses mana, but it's a pretty common trope at this point. So the question we started to ask ourselves is, this thing is basically everywhere across magical fantasy as a genre, but where did it come from? What's the origin? Did some dude just make it up in his basement in the 1920s or something weird like that? So we decided to start digging. Yeah, we got our little shovels out and we found out the term mana wasn't actually invented for fantasy out of whole cloth. In fact, it has a long history as a spiritual term across many of the languages and cultures in the Pacific Islands. Now, given that this is a term that exists across a number of cultures, there really isn't one universal meaning of the term. But in general, it's associated with a form of spiritual power. And as it turns out, we've been pronouncing it wrong the entire time. That's right. Mana is actually mana. And according to anthropologist Roger Keesing, probably more appropriate to think about mana or mana as a verb rather than a noun. And the story of mana just starts with knowing from where it came from. We wanted to find out how it went from the Pacific Islands to a blue bar in WOW. So we talked with Matt Tomlinson, an associate professor of anthropology at the Australian National University. So travelers are coming to the Pacific Islands, especially in the early and mid-19th century. And there's a range of travelers, traders, people who want to make money. And after them, of course, missionaries show up. So you get reports from the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, where, where observers, Western observers in various parts of the Pacific, from New Zealand to Hawaii to Samoa, are talking about this word mama and what it might mean. And it becomes clear from their first writings that it's associated with power somehow, but it's a kind of extra human power. It's it's not regular power like, like muscle power. It's a kind of power that goes beyond. So mana gets associated with spiritual or religious power in the Pacific Islands from these early observers because that's how local people were talking about it. But what happened then was very strange, but very interesting, I think, in Western academic history. Because when more and more scholars in the West heard about Mana from the Pacific Islands, once, so Darwin publishes The Origin of Species in 1859. So thereafter, social scientists try to understand if societies can evolve in the same way as species. And so starting in about the 1870s, 1880s, 
Mana joins this conversation about could there be an evolutionary pattern to the way humans develop religious concepts? And if so, would something like Mana be this kind of original human conception of spiritual power? So some people get very excited about the idea of Mana, the term of Mana, because they think it's the key to understanding the evolution of human religious thought. Remember, this is not, these are not theologians arguing about what God may or may not want for people. These are social scientists and religious historians who want to understand how all humans come to, not all humans, but many humans come to think about these unseen powers that might affect our lives. And they thought that mana might be especially good to think about. So the, the very famous the official beginning of Mahner in Western academic um, discourse is from 1891, when an Anglican missionary named R.H. Codrington, who was also an anthropologist of his time, he wrote a book called The Melanesians, and in it he defined Mana as what works to affect everything, which is beyond the ordinary power of men outside the common processes of nature. And that definition gets quoted all the time now, because it's the first foundational statement, but he'd actually written about it in these terms since the 1870s, but it wasn't until 1891 that his his big foundational statement was published. And then, you know, the, the gates were open, and there was a huge amount of theorizing about mana and what place it might have in a universal human history from the late 19th century until the mid-20th century. Social evolutionism died a, a pretty violent death in anthropology, and no good anthropologists are evolutionists of that, that old school, where they think that societies have to change in regular preordained patterns. But mana lived on, like, like all good terms and concepts, all, all things that are fun to think about, like the term culture or society itself, mana lived second and third and fourth lives because it became useful for other projects. So Manda gets brought over as a way to think about the history of religion. And even though a lot of the social evolution stuff is, well, originally tied to what was thrown into the dustbin of history, people still use mana. Yeah, it seems like this idea of pervasive supernatural force is just too useful of an idea in academia. So it keeps getting used. But that is far from the end of mana's journey. The next step was for it to cross over from dusty academia into a more popular understanding. The first way Mana moved from a more popular understanding came in the late 50s, early 60s. The early baby boomers were just starting to make their way out of school into what would turn out to be 60s counterculture. Oh yeah, baby. The kids were looking to new public intellectuals, generating new interest in finding systems that could unify the human experience rather than fragment it even more. This is when guys like Joseph Campbell really started to have their moment in the sun. The Romanian historian of religion, Mersha Eliad, found a home at the University of Chicago and began to write about mana, not just for an academic audience, but for the general public. He was a frequent contributor to Harper Torch book series, writing seven books for the nonfiction series that also included writers that you'll probably associate with all kinds of fantasy movies and writers, folks like Karl Popper, Joseph Campbell, 
bunch of other intellectuals. This brought mana beyond academia for really the first time, even if it was still mostly for the highly educated public. Yeah, so we get to this point in the 60s where mana has been in academia now for almost 100 years, and the term has kind of changed meaning a few times, but it's starting to seep out into the broader public awareness of at least the term anyway. But where we really get into mana as a fantasy trope seems to begin with a guy named Larry Niven, and he was born in the late 30s and kind of grows up and goes to school in this environment where mana is something you're going to be hearing about, at least at an undergrad level. He's not an anthropology major or anything, but ends up taking some classes and reads a book about cargo cults in Papua New Guinea, uh, which, guess what, introduces him to the idea of mana. Yeah, so imagine, you know, it's the 60s, man, and everybody's talking about all kinds of trippy stuff like, have you heard about the supernatural force mana? Larry Niven starts his writing career in the mid-1960s. He's actually written dozens of books over the last couple of decades. He's won a Hugo Award, mostly known for his sci-fi stuff. But for the story of Mana, the most significant thing he wrote was a short story in 1969 called Not Long Before the End. It takes place in a world where Mana, this kind of force, that power magic in a fantasy world, is cast as a non-renewable resource. Yeah. Wizard needs mana badly. <laughs> That's where it comes from. It's something that's tied to the land. It's a source of power, but it is exhaustible. The same world was used in a 1978 novella that Niven wrote called The Magic Goes Away, which really makes it an allegory for the energy crisis in the 1970s. It's right there in the title. Well, that seems to be the major crossover point for mana in popular fiction. But what's interesting to me is to see how this was integrated into gaming culture as well. Because as Niven is writing about this stuff in the late 60s and the 70s, the Bay Area, San Francisco and so on, is turning into a hotbed of people experimenting with fantasy role-playing games. This is the same environment that created the society of creative anachronism at the time. All right, so we've gone from that academic Timothy Leary uh, 60s awakening, and now we're just in the 70s, man, and and and... People aren't as intellectual anymore. They just want to have fun. Uh, There's still the smoke-filled rooms, but that smoke has become a different kind of smoke over the past couple of decades. And in terms of role-playing, which really starts to take off in this time period, a lot of people don't realize how mana was used in early Dungeons & Dragons. While the official magic system from the 1974 Dungeons & Dragons is based pretty explicitly on the writings of Jack Vance, D&D was an open system at the time and really opened the door for people to add their own spin on it. Mana is almost immediately grafted on. You have fanzines in 1975 talking about mana the same way you would see in Niven's work, but applying it to D&D worlds. By 1976, guys like Greg Stafford are using homespun mana rules with his Arduin world, which would eventually be published as an unofficial rule supplement in 1977 with the Arduin Grimoire. It really shows how pervasive this idea of mana had become when people were thinking about this kind of spiritual otherness with magic systems and mana almost seemingly getting grafted on. Yeah, and it really seems like there was an interest in making these kinds of games as authentic as possible when it came to magic, which is funny because magic's not really real, but authenticity is still desired, just like the Society of Creative Anachronism was trying to do with medieval culture. So 
You have game designers who aren't just looking at Niven for ideas, but going back to the works of Mercia Iliad to try to make magic systems that work like real magic. That's in quotes, of course, because again, no such thing. You've got stuff like Authentic Thaumaturgy coming out in 1978 as a sort of source book trying to make RPGs use magic based on actual practices. I like this idea of researching actual magic. Uh, Interestingly, it isn't really at this point that we see the idea of spell points become synonymous with mana yet. In fact, spell points as a concept predate D&D with a game called Midgard that used that system in 1971. Spell point systems really become popular as RPGs make their way to computerized versions, being a cleaner metric to program for than something like spell memorization, which is pretty analog. But with all these video games in the 80s with spell points and magic points, it didn't really mean that those would inevitably become mana points. The funny thing is that this is probably a case of being lost in translation. One of the games that really kicked off the JRPG tradition, that's Japanese role-playing game in Japan, was the translation of Ultima 3, which uses a magic point system. The system influenced a lot of JRPGs in the future, and at the time, which were eventually translated back into English. Seems like, along that path, MP for magic points started being written as mana points. Yeah, and it would be forgivable to think, oh, maybe this is just, you know, translation back and forth that's causing the problem, but it doesn't seem to be the case. If mana isn't already kind of pervading the fantasy landscape as a trope, that kind of inference doesn't get made. There may be an alliterative similarity there, but I don't think that happens if the connective tissue isn't already there. And outside of, of course, RPGs, one of the most popular uses of mana as a mechanic is Magic the Gathering. This has a very Larry Niven approach to mana where it's tied to the land as a resource. That directly powers the ability to use spells. If you've ever played Magic, you know how this works. And if there's any doubt where they got their inspiration, Navinaral's disc was an artifact included in Magic's first edition. Yes, ask your doctor if Navinaral is right for you. Uh, (laughs) You may not realize this hearing it spoken, but if you see it written, you might cotton to the fact that Navinaral, of course, is Larry Niven, spelled backwards. My mind is blown. So all it took for me to get mana in World of Warcraft was for tens of thousands of years of linguistics evolution in the Pacific Islands that were co-opted by a bunch of Western academics in the mid-19th century to spend a century bouncing around in dusty academic circles just to be soaked up by a growing counterculture that wanted to play role-playing games, who at some point assumed MP meant mana instead of magic. Yep. Sounds so simple when you put it like that. The craziest thing about this whole thing is that at its height, WoW had more players than there were Pacific Islanders who were talking about mana. We had a great interview with Professor Alex Gullib that we used in our research for this episode, but I think it really encapsulates the importance of mana. I think the amazing thing about more WoW players using mana than there being Pacific Islanders in the world is how potent and important ideas in the Pacific are and how they can radiate outwards. The thing to take away from that, I think, is how important the Pacific is into the world as a region, even if people don't always recognize it. Many, many young people today have tattoos, which they think they made up themselves, which oftentimes date back to tattooing traditions in the Pacific. Uh, Mana is another example. The Pacific definitely punches above its weight in terms of the influence that it's had in human history. 
I don't know about you. I've learned a lot. I, I now understand why that wizard needs food badly. And we really hope you enjoyed this first episode of Current Geek Chronicles. I hope people continue to play video games and see a little blue bar and have a little bit of a new meaning applied mm -hmm. to it. You guys learned something today. I know that I did. Uh, so watch for that blue bar and always, always keep your mana high. <laughs> Next time on Current Geek Chronicles, wrestling. What the heck? Yeah. Uh, so many of our friends love wrestling. So uh, Scott and I decided we had to try and find out why. And we found out why. That's right. So next time, an outsider's guide to wrestling on Current Geek Chronicles. I can't wait. Support the show, subscribe, and get all our episodes at currentgeek.com. Talk to you next time. Current Geek Chronicles is produced by Hammond Chamberlain and Rich Straffolino. Executive produced and hosted by Scott Johnson and Tom Merritt. Interviews provided by Matthew Tomlinson and Professor Alex Golub, with additional information provided by John Peterson. Our theme music is by Eric Van Skyhawk. Get more of his songs on Apple Music or Spotify under the name Skyhawk. Special thanks to Kevin McLeod for letting us use Thunderbird. Part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at frogpants.com. <laughs>